Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. We're a small country and you listen, we're up against it, but let's not just go along for the sink song every now and again. All right, I hope we're all feeling nice and rested. I think we're just about good to go back to the football. Four straight days of quarterfinals to look forward to in today's Irish Time. Second Captain's Euros podcast. I'm going to look forward to them with Ken in Paris. Hi, Ken. Hey, Owen, how are you? I'm good. I have to say, though, I'm worried about the biggest individual star left in the tournament. Who is Cristiano Ronaldo? Did you see the picture I sent onto you there that he posted on Instagram? I did. So, it right. was yeah. extremely impressive. It's, oh, extremely impressive, yeah. Presumably this was a bid to freak out his Polish opponents by displaying his ridiculous physique. So he's he's relatively fully clothed in this one compared to some previous Cristiano Ronaldo photo shoots. He's just post-workout at the gym at Portugal's training base. But he has got the shorts hitched up nice and high, a little like he does when he's missing long-range free kicks all the time. I think, I think actually, he's just wearing short shorts, Owen. I think it, those are shorts that don't even need to be hitched. <laughs> Um, you know, Ronaldo, I think, would like a return generally to the days of the mid to late 80s when those tiny little shorts uh, showed off everything a player really had to <laughs> offer. And uh, and maybe when he's in the gym, that's the kind of stuff he likes to wear. His quad muscles, in fairness, they would have the desired effect on me if I was a Polish centre half. Frankly, they're insane. They're just two heavy blocks of muscle jutting off at these <laughs> completely improbable angles. But if you scan a little further down the picture there, right? And I'll tell you what, mm-hmm. if you're listening, and if you, if you happen to have a laptop or anything in front of you, you're probably on the move, but if you are at home or at work, Google Cristiano Ronaldo Instagram. It'll be the first one that, pop, that pops up, but hang on for you here. We might have been joined a 64.8 million followers while we're waiting, Ken. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think everyone has it now, anyone who can. So try to avert your eyes if you can from those mountainous quads. Look a little further down on his left leg, around by his shin. Uh-huh. This is the reason Portugal will be beaten by Poland. 
Cristiano Ronaldo's varicose veins, Ken. They're not varicose veins, are they? Oh, they are. I should know. I'm a sufferer myself. <laughs> oh, and they're not varicose veins. And that's just that's just vasculature. Oof. That's just what's... Um, why are they protruding so much further on the left leg than the right, Ken? I'll tell you why. Because he's got a condition that can cause pain, fatigue, restlessness, and feelings of burning, throbbing, tingling, or indeed heaviness in the legs. That is what... You don't want to be carrying into a European Championship quarterfinal with you. And that is why I've suggested some homemade remedies for Cristiano Ronaldo. Why why has Cristiano Ronaldo got varicose veins? Why have I got varicose veins, Ken? Who knows? Well, you're just, you know, I mean, I'm I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. (laughs) But maybe maybe Mother Nature hasn't been, I mean, Mother Nature's been generous with you, Owen. I mean, obviously, you know, you're you're a lucky man in so many ways. But maybe Mother Nature just favoured Cristiano Ronaldo a little bit more in certain physical respects. I mean, there's no shame in that. You know, I think, I think he's, a, he's an outstanding physical specimen. I mean, I think, he'd, he'd, um, I think many of us would have to concede that he's, he's probably in slightly better nick than we are. <laughs> uh, so uh, what he's got on his legs there aren't varicose veins. It's just the sort of uh, vasculature that, uh, well, some people maybe might, might develop on the, on the biceps or in the arms. Uh, not too many people manage to get it on the shins to quite that uh, extent, but he is, uh, he is an extreme kind of guy. Apply undiluted apple cider vinegar on the skin over the varicose veins and gently massage the area. What? Uh, add one teaspoon of cayenne pe- pepper. Is that how you pronounce that? Uh, pepper cayenne powder pepper, yeah. to a cup of hot water and stir it well. Drink this mixture three times a day or just mix equal amounts of olive oil and vitamin E oil and warm it slightly. Massage the veins with the warm oil for several minutes. All of these treatments Where are you, where are you getting all this on? From like witches Wikipedia or something? Something along those lines. But time is not on Cristiano Ronaldo's side, Ken. All of these treatments take a couple of months to have an effect. So I'm afraid Portugal's European adventure ends against Poland. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if it did. Um, Poland, of course, were my pre-tournament uh, tip for the top. Uh, they haven't produced any football really to justify my confidence. Uh, so far, they've been playing. Uh, they've played a lot of boring, tight games, but they have managed to get through to the quarterfinals. And I think in Portugal, they face an opponent who, so far, hasn't really been um, been at the races. I mean, they've managed to. They haven't actually won a game yet in ninety minutes. Um, they did manage to beat Croatia with uh, with the first shot on target of the game. Well, in fact, it was the second shot because Ronaldo had a shot, and a second later, um, it was it Nani who who tapped in the rebound. Um, they were the first two shots on target of the entire game. They have one in the 116th minute. So not a great game between Portugal and Croatia. Um, you know, Croatia really looked like they were asleep. Who knows what's going on there? It's a difficult, uh, it's a complicated setup, the Croatian one. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of people, a lot of disagreements over a lot of issues there. And it seemed as though the team didn't really have their heads in the game. But Portugal, you know, you couldn't really say that about Portugal. What you can say about Portugal is that they really just seem to be deeply mediocre. At this stage, you know, it's Ronaldo. They still haven't got anyone remotely on his level. They, they don't seem to have a new sort of generation. I mean, Caresma and Ronaldo, these are the guys who were the future of Portuguese football in 2004. And they're still the present of Portuguese football 12 years later. Um, so that's, it's a little bit worrying from their point of view. Poland, I think, have got a more even spread of quality in the team. They also have an absolute superstar in Lewandowski, who hasn't scored yet in the tournament. I don't know how that's happened. Um but he's got to score eventually. So I think that, um, I, I think I slightly favour Poland actually in that one. You did say uh, in a dramatic post-Iceland-England podcast that you'd need some time to process what happened in that game. 
mm. in Lanzamon. Have you been processing away over there in Paris? Well, I mean, so we saw we saw poor old Roy Hodgson. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff coming out then. People in the England's camp were close to the players. You know, I guess some players, maybe players' agents and so on, have started to talk a little bit. Um, you get quotes appearing. There was in the Times I saw, Roy Hodgson is the kind of man who doesn't know if he wants tea or coffee in the morning. And that sort of uh, indecision um, seeped through to the players and sapped their confidence. Mm-hmm. You know, you had Deli Ali coming over to uh, ask instructions. What am I supposed to do, boss? I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing out here. Um, which is ironic, given that uh, Hodgson had devised the style of play, or thought he had devised the style of play, which is essentially copying Tottenham. So Deli Ali was more or less required to do what he do what you do for Tottenham, lad. That was essentially the instruction. But of course, it's a different setup yeah, between England and Tottenham. You know, n- not everything really was the same. It turned out it was difficult to just uh, replicate um, to replicate that. I mean. Uh, Rooney himself says he's not retiring, which I find curious because he's going to be nearly 33 when the next World Cup happens. He's already clinging on to his place in the team, I think, by his fingernails, having to move around to sort of be accommodated, can't play as a striker anymore. Clearly, uh, he's not going to improve over the next couple of years. I mean, maybe he, maybe if he, if he continues playing the sort of position he has been playing in this tournament, maybe he will you know, get more used to it. Maybe he'll develop more sort of ideas. But physically speaking, you know, I think he's going to struggle. I mean, in two in two years' time, I don't know. Um, I think that the next manager of England, whoever it is, and it looks as though it'll be Gareth Southgate for a little while at least until they get somebody else in, which would be a great way for Southgate to start. So the second choice, stopgap Southgate, um, you know, get him in there. But I think the next thing a manager will want to will want Rooney to retire in order to spare him the awkward, the awkwardness of having to retire Rooney. You know, I think he's sort of reached that point. Um, he's got the same number of caps, I think, as David Beckham, who's the other record uh, caps holder. Remember, Steve McLaren tried to retire David Beckham, then ended up having to bring him back. I think that in Rooney's case, uh, the next manager will, will want to do that. But, you know, it's, it's just, I, I think the thing that goes wrong with them has to do with the uh, the way in which they know. Stephen Gerrard actually wrote about this. Um, I mean, Stephen Gerrard is, is is maybe a little bit. <laughs> he he does have a sort of sort of dark view of things. I'm not sure if everyone necessarily thinks the same way as he does. Uh, but he had written a piece about this, saying, "Look, it's it's actually the fear. It's the fear of failure. It's the fear of the disgrace that they that the players all know is going to happen." He was saying after Iceland had gone two one up. Half the players are going to be thinking, what what happens if we don't score? What happens if we don't get back against these? This is going to be the worst ever. You know, and this is this is what they're thinking during the match. You could you could say, well, the players need to be mentally stronger than that. The players need to focus on what they're doing. And that is that is true. But equally, um, you know, when you see I think Danny Baker's tweets are a good example of the kind of of, of what sort of awaits these players. You know, they they're kind of treated almost like war criminals in a way. Um, you know, it's, it's, how, can, how can you not sort of think about that? Remember Wilshire squatting on the ground and jamming his fist into his mouth and trying to tear his face apart? What kind of a reaction was that to, to, uh, to losing a football match? It was 
it was bizarre. I think, I mean, you'd love to know exactly what's going on in his head, but whatever it is, it isn't good. You know, I think that's that's a, that's a problem. But also you can see that the players don't really like each other that much. There's all these kind of squabbling, you know, uh, Jamie Vardy's wife. You know, we don't like Jamie Vardy's wife. She keeps tweeting, like, who does she think she is? You know, our wives have been complaining to us about Jamie Vardy's wife. Like, it's just just this kind of nonsense. Um, the which, Academy generation, Kent. The Academy generation, for that is what they are. are so- headphones. Oh, well, yeah. This is Jamie Carragher in his Daily Mail. The Academy generation are soft physically and soft mentally. We think we are making them men, but actually we are creating babies. So what do they need? More bullying, hazing, um, menial tasks at a young age. What's the prescription? I don't know. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't understand. Are they soft physically? Why should they be soft physically? Like, are we talking about their, their fitness levels or their kind of hardness, their hard man credentials? Um, I suppose there aren't really too many hard men, hard men in that England, in that England team that you can look at, you know. But I mean, are there, you know, is this is this is Euro twenty sixteen bristling with hard men? In general? I'm not sure. You know, there's academies in a lot of other countries as well. There are academies in Iceland, tons of academies. I don't yeah, know if you class them as such, but that's what they are. And uh, it turns out they're doing a pretty good job of creating hard physical and hard mental uh, human beings. But is it is it a case of like the Iceland academies are kind of trading on the sort of Rocky Four model, like, you know, running up mountains and, and dragging around huge tires and chopping wood, whereas the English ones are kind of all, just all machine-based exercises. I mean, are we talking, is the, is the difference something like that? I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't really see why. I mean, I suppose there is a problem with the academies in terms of uh, the lack of competitive football. Although, to be fair, a lot of guys in the England team do make a break, who, are, who reach that level, do kind of make the breakthrough a little bit earlier than that. Um, you know, Premier League clubs hoarding young players, keeping them on the bench, that is maybe a bit of a problem, but that's, that's the Premier League. I mean, the Premier League is a really rich league. Maybe these players need to be a bit more assertive. Maybe they need to say, look, okay, I'm going to go play in the championship. I'm going to go play in the lower division. You know, it doesn't seem to have done Dele Alli any harm, for instance, playing for MK Dons for a while. You know, I mean, it's... Seemed to work out well for him. That's something for the players to think about, the players and their families. You know, obviously some of them would rather be, you know, making a, a ton of money um, playing for Chelsea's reserves than making a bit less money but actually developing more as a player, you know, with an eye in the future. I mean, but that's that's also, that's up to the players. And sometimes, you know, family, you can't really blame families sometimes for wanting to cash in at the first opportunity. You know, it's it's it's... It's it's one thing to say, oh, the players shouldn't do that, but it's another thing to actually to sort of turn down the opportunity to get instantly rich, you know, for like the riskier proposition of playing in a in a lower division club in the hope that you'll fight your way up the ladder. You know, lots of people never manage to do that. So, you know, it's it's easy to sort of criticize that sort of thinking, but you know, that's an, that's an, wait and see how you would react when you were faced with the same decision yourself. You know, if, if you missed Tuesday's pods, you should do yourself a favor. You can listen to Danny Baker's tweets in all their glory, as brought to you by Murph. Uh, Angelo Fiorini tweeted in though, Ken. Great coverage of Italy, Spain today, lads. Hashtag <laughs> the Danny Baker show, <laughs> laughing, crying face. Now, in fairness to Angelo, we did give that game about two and a half seconds, uh, during which you you said you were quite. You found it quite a boring spectacle, I think, which I was surprised by because I thought Italy have set themselves up beautifully for this game against Germany by putting in another uber Italian display. Yeah, Italy were Italy were excellent. Um, I still think Germany will beat them. Actually, uh, I think this record of Germany never having beaten Italy in a competitive match has gone on long enough. 
Uh, I think Germany have got better players, although maybe Italy do have a better coach. That said, I mean, I, I do think Antonio Conte set his team up well and, and neutralized Spain quite well. Although, you know, I don't think it would have worked against the top Spanish side, you know, four, six, eight years ago. I think those Spanish teams would have played Italy off the park easily like they did to everybody. You know, like they did to Italy last time they met them in the European Championships, 4-0 in the final. Um, but Spain Spain aren't that team anymore. You know, they're a kind of, uh, they're a past it team. It's not just, it's not a question of physically past it. Although, you know, someone like Andres Iniesta is, is kind of very much an elder statesman mode now. Um, but I think psychologically, I think they've just won too much. I think it's kind of like it's lost the thrill for them being in these international tournaments. I think being in a tournament is just kind of a pain for them. You know, when Pedro was saying all this stuff, can't believe I'm sitting here on the bench. You know, this is just boring. They made them, they wheeled him out to apologize and he repeated everything and said, I'm not sorry. You know, I mean, no one was saying that six years ago when they were in the World Cup in South Africa, you know, living in a, in a sort of a, in barracks like conditions. But that's because they were all excited to be there. You know, this was like, this was huge. This was Spain are going to win the World Cup. We really think we can do it. We've never done it before. We're going to do it. Now they have done it. They've won the European Championships twice. I think some of these players need to move on now and and make way for for the next generation of Spanish players, which is not to say that the next generation is anywhere near as good as the ones that have come. I think it's a sort of a double bind for Spain. On the one hand, you've got players who've already proved everything, who've won everything and lack maybe the sort of intensity at this stage, to keep going. Maybe on some subconscious level, they would just like to be on holidays now. What they really need is a holiday, more than a, more than a championship. A holiday is the most precious thing they can imagine at this stage. Imagine just extra weeks to rest and rest your weary, weary limbs, you know? Get yourself back in shape for the new season. That's what they really want. Another title, who cares? You've already won two European championships. Who cares? You know, uh, and then they've got younger players who maybe are a little bit intimidated by the fact that they feel they can't really match up to what has been achieved by the previous generation. That generation, and they've lost, they've obviously lost key players from that generation. I mean, I'm thinking obviously of Xavi first and foremost, who we can see now as the player who structured the, I mean, we could see it at the time, but it becomes more and more evident the more you see them without him. They can't control the ball, they can't control the game in the way that they used to when Xavi was there stitching everything together in the field. Uh, Xavi Alonso, was also a hugely important player. I mean, who, which kind of a team has two midfielders of that quality at the same time? It's just it's insane that they have that kind of quality to call on. Then you've got, you know, but they've still got Busquets and Iniesta. They're more, maybe more in the we've already proved everything category. But, you know, David Villa, uh, Fernando Torres for a while uh, were really important players at the cutting edge. I mean, their front three against Italy was just not, not in that league at all. Mm. Not in that league. So, you know, they're, they're a diminished team. They're a tired team. Uh, Italy were uh, really energetic, really aggressive, tactically intelligent, set about Spain, just set about them. And Spain just, I don't think, had the appetite. They crumbled. Um, so, I, you know, while it's, while it's, a, it's a great win, I, I wouldn't necessarily get too carried away with the fact that Italy beat Spain. Too. I think Germany would be a tougher game. For them, and maybe Germany have a couple of the same issues as Spain did in terms of having already been to the top of the mountain, you know. But I, I think their team is a little bit more intact. I think this is more like the, um, the Germany that won the World Cup than than this current Spain team is compared to the, the title-winning Spain teams of the recent past. Uh, I think Germany are better players than Italy, and you know, 
Antonio Conte will need to come up with something good <laughs> if Italy are going to preserve that record of never having lost to them in competition. Belgium suffered a similar defeat um, to Italy, as Spain did, but they've regrouped pretty well. Thanks in no small part to our... Uh, acquiescence there I think in the in the second game they've tonked Hungary since then as well and Christoph Terrer I'm sure is looking forward to their quarterfinal against Wales on Friday night Christoph is confidence pretty high again now? Well I think the the, the, the Italy game was a sort of a wake up call to uh, to be back with the feet on the ground it's sometimes good to lose in a tournament I think uh, to see that there are still other stronger teams Belgium haven't played a lot against stronger teams in the in the qualifying campaigns also not at the World Cup we only lost to Argentina it's the only top game we've played in a lot for four years except some friendlies but yeah, you can't uh, you can't make big deals out of a friendly game in my eyes so uh, yeah it was a wake up call for the players they have talked about tactics they have had some group meetings and I think they have changed all the style. There, some of the players have have talked to the manager to give him some tactical advice or say what they were thinking. Manager, I don't know if he had folded, but he got it right in his in his lineups after after the after the, the Italy game. So we were not good against Sweden. It was a boring game, but in the end, at the end, we won. So uh, yeah, I think we're now in a good way, but still. We're still a bit aware of what's happened in the last three games against Wales, where we uh, where we didn't win one of those three games. We even lost one, two draws. So we know that Wales can cause us troubles also because they're playing a 3-5-2. This system that caused us lots of problems uh, against Italy. So we'll have to see. Did Belgium struggle to contain Gareth Bale in those games? Is, is that the reason that Belgium ha- failed to beat Wales? Yeah, yeah, but Bale, Bale was uh, was at least twice. Uh, he, he didn't play in the first draw. He was injured, I think, but he was twice brilliant. Certainly on the counter attack, when he get gets some 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 space and with his space he can cause troubles. Yeah, it's it's yeah. I think uh, Wales are also better when they can play uh, uh, in a reaction that they can react that they don't have to uh, have the ball a lot, but that they just can do their positioning, their organization, and then hoping on one. One uh, touch of uh, brilliance for that's what happened in those games. So uh, Belgians are aware of trails. I think, like for instance, like they have done before, they will show a bit of respect by not uh, by not be, that that the fullbacks won't play too attacking in the beginning of the game because of the danger of Bale. One of them will. Uh, We'll stay behind, I think, for Tongan to to cover Bale a bit. We have been in, yeah, we've lost for Malin due to a suspension. That's a that's a blow. But I think Wilmot will play Jason Denier, who played in the game in Wales and could cope with Bale's pace. What's already something for a player is quite pacey, so we could use him now. I think. I'm interested, Christoph, that you said the players have gone to the coach Mark Wilmot and asked him to change tactics because. It, I don't know, Vilmos doesn't look to me like the kind of guy who would take too kindly to a- any idea that the players are taking power here. Is that what, what is happening? Well, well it's, I don't think, I don't know if it's listened, but they have talked about tactics. Uh, players said, uh, we have to talk about this. Can't we do this? Can't we do this? But I also heard that some said, yeah, you know the manager too. 
he won't change his mind, but he has played other players. He he moves the Brianna back to to the to the number ten, which is in my eyes still his best position on the wing. He loses some of his qualities. He, uh, has it started performing by playing close to the Brianna, and yeah, just some players have stepped up. That helps a manager too. Uh, Hazard has uh, has played his best games uh, in the national team uh, uh, so far. Hungary, we uh, people in Belgium have never seen that unless they watch Chelsea. But that was Hazard's best performance ever for the national team. The uh, Brianna has been really good. Even Lukaku is is quite decent, although he he can't put his mark completely yet. So yeah. Something has changed also in the mindset of the players, uh, knowing that they are now at the good side of the draw too. Uh, it's a unique chance to go to the final uh, for them, and that's what they're dreaming of. So uh, they want to go to the final, and they will never get a chance like this. Uh, they will only meet a real top team once they're in the final, but yeah, first they have to beat Wales, of course. Uh, do you think they will? Sounds like you, you feel they'll get past Wales this time. Well, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure, but, but I'm always quite cautious because we have always had lots of disappointments, uh, which we're used to uh, to bottle it as a bit like the English feeling. Uh, so, but I think the players, players themselves, are quite confident. They will beat Wales. They know they are better. The only fear. I think maybe Bale and Ramsey or Joe Allen are the only players they really know. They know they are an organized team. I think in their heads they are already focusing on the semi-finals. That that was the goal before the tournament, doing better than at the World Cup where they reached the quarterfinals against Argentina and lost uh, 1-0. So, and that was the goal before the goal. We want to play semi-finals. So they're close to goal, so they're... They have to do it. They have to do it. Everyone in Belgium now expects them to go to the semi-final at least because yeah, Wales, although we played four times against them in the last four years, is a bit of an unknown factor. I think if you ask the average Belgian name one uh, one Welsh player, I think someone would struggle to name Gareth Bale, for instance. So the others are completely unknown. That's why we have... Normal people have high expectations too. All right, Christoph Terrera, listen, enjoy the game. Thanks for talking. Words really, I'm, I'm over the moon. Emotional, it's, it's 
It's unbelievable. It's Stuttgart. It's New Jersey. They're all rolled into one. Another big, big scalp when it was needed most. Leon, here we come. Oh, pretty interesting stuff there, Ken. It seems like <laughs> it seems like Belgium have recovered their verve and self confidence since that opening day humbling. A, a, a touch of the um, English style overconfidence coming into this one. Does it sound like? I hope so. <laughs> I actually, I hope so. I love Wales to beat Belgium. But this is Wales have beaten Belgium, and uh, as Christoph says, it doesn't matter how often Wales beat them or give them trouble. Still, nobody in the country knows anybody besides Gareth Bale and the team. They don't seem to pay attention to these other guys playing well against them. I suppose that's the same. Look, we all, you know, as Irish supporters, we've played other countries in a number of occasions, and we probably still generally, uh, how many Slovakia players do we remember outside of Hamzik, for example? But at the same time, Belgium have actually. To, beaten, beaten, uh, I should say Wales have beaten Belgium, and yet still doesn't seem to be a huge amount of respect. And even the players, Christoph said, in their heads, they're probably already focusing on the semi finals. I'm staggered by that. I'm not surprised by it at all. Um, no, uh, no, I mean, the, look at the, the Belgian players would look at the Wales squad and think, I don't know any of these guys apart from Bale. Yeah, same as the English yeah. players looking at the Iceland squad. You can learn your lessons from recent, <laughs> know, recent yeah. history. <laughs> I know. I, I, it's it's it, it's got to be a difficult game for Belgium if Wales perform to their potential, which they didn't against England. Um, you know, in England, they it was one of those games where the little team. I was talking to a friend of mine, he's saying sometimes in those games the smaller team plays the shirt and not the game. And I think Wales shriveled a little bit. They you know they knew that this was the big game. This is the one their supporters really wanted to win. Um, they got a little bit overawed, I think, by the by the occasion, and and just played really badly, you know, and lost. I think um, maybe against Belgium, Belgium who are a better side than England, but not really. It's not the same game for Wales. It's not as psychologically, it's not as big an occasion. I mean, it's a huge occasion. It's the European Championship quarterfinal. It's in, it's insane that Wales are are here. You know, considering where they were just a few years ago, this is this is amazing. You know, they've already they've already achieved amazing things. So it is. It's the biggest game Wales have played since what nineteen fifty eight or whatever. Um, but it's not. It's it's in a way. It's there's not the same edge to it as there is with the England game. And I hope that they're able to perform closer to their real potential than they showed against England. Um, so if they do, then yeah, I could see some problems for for Belgium. I mean, the, the thing that. The advantage that Wales have over Ireland, for instance, is obviously just Bale. Um, they've got this like superhero who can dominate teams in, uh, on the counter-attack, who can terrify defences. I mean, Wales, Belgium can't really come forward against Wales as much as they could against someone like Ireland because they don't have to worry about what happens behind them against Ireland. With Gareth Bale and the team, you know, you need at least three men back. It's, it makes it a bit more difficult to sort of have, have a real... Um, you know, structured domination of the game. So, I don't know. Um, it depends on which Wales turn up. You'd have to favour Belgium. They've obviously got the better players, but, uh, and as Martin O'Neill was saying, you know, the team with the better players usually does win. 
Uh, but not always. Wales' biggest issue is obviously going to be coming down from the high of supporting Iceland <laughs> against England in that video that we all saw. Chris Gunter was asked about this at the press conference. He said it certainly wasn't a video to show any lack of respect. I think it's fantastic for the tournament that another smaller nation had progressed through, another team that were probably written off before a ball was kicked. But our celebration certainly wasn't meant as a lack of respect. A lot of people in the squad, no players from the England side. I think the main feeling after the final whistle, and probably in a selfish way from the squad, was a real pride that we're the last team from the home nations to be in the tournament. So stopping well short of apologising to English players for celebrating so wildly. Yeah, didn't they put out some kind of official? Oh, sorry about that. Ah, forget about the official. Sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this, this is closer yeah. to their true feeling. Well, why should they? Why should they have to apologise? You know, it's just. I mean, everyone in the world was laughing at that. That was the football in the groin of, of international football matches. I mean, who can? Who could not laugh at that? There were people all over England laughing at that. There was a guy. There was a guy where I was watching it. There was an English guy on his honeymoon who had packed his wife off for a couple of hours while he was watching this game. And by the end, he was just sitting there laughing. What can you do? What, what, what else could you do when, when faced with that? I mean, you could obviously rant and rave and, and scream, <laughs> which, which one or two England fans obviously did. Um, but maybe, maybe you know, it's laughing is, is an understandable response. And obviously, Wales are happy seeing lose. I mean, it'd be, they, they can have a great time whenever they go back to their clubs. You know, Aaron Ramsey can always have something to say to Jack Wilshire. Um, you know what I mean? It's it's all that kind of all that kind of stuff. I I, I mean, there's not big deal. You laugh at someone's team losing. I mean, who cares? All right, let's look a little bit uh, more closely at the first quarterfinal between Poland and Portugal, which features John Bruin, two, well, I guess, the two biggest stars in the competition. Certainly, Cristiano Ronaldo, who's done the business in the last game for Portugal, but also Robert Lewandowski, who hasn't really lit it up yet for certainly hasn't scored yet for Poland. What? You've seen him play up close. What's up with Lewandowski this tournament? Uh, well, what I'd say about Robert Lewandowski, um, I saw him play against Switzerland at the weekend in St Etienne, is that his his role for his team is, I'll call it sacrificial. Um, he, he plays up front, which possibly he doesn't think is his best position. I think he prefers to play off somebody. Um and he takes a frightful kick in from defenders, got some really hefty whacks at the weekend. Um, I, I was waiting around after the game to try and get a word with him, which I didn't get, actually, because he refuses to speak English. But um, he had a noticeable limp. It looked like he'd really taken a, a pummeling. Um, and the thing is, Poland have got some decent other players, Grzycki on the wing is, is a good player. Milik, I think, is a good player. I saw him play for um, for Poland against Scotland um, in the qualifiers, which obviously favoured Ireland uh, back last year. And I think I think he's an excellent player, but his finishing has gone to pot. And you should have seen the relief on his face when he scored his penalty in the shootout. Um, and they've got Kuchowiak in midfield. So Lewandowski's got good players around him. But the question always is to the coach, Adam Novelka, is when is he going to score? And after that Switzerland game, Novelka actually promised that Lewandowski would score in the next game. So let's see how that goes. When we when we played Poland, obviously, in the qualifiers, as you mentioned there, and they were, they were, well, they kind of ran us ragged a little bit in the last game of the group stage. But against us in Lansdowne Road, they got the goal ahead and then sat back a little bit and sort of allowed us back into the game. But they did; they certainly didn't seem like a team who were rock solid defensively, I didn't think necessarily in either of those games. But they seem to have, have maybe a more cautious approach here. 
Yeah, I think I think the plan is that they go ahead. If they go ahead in a the game, they'll try and hold it. What we have, we hold. Um, I actually remember them doing similar at Euro 2012, and that was disastrous for them in the end. Um, and yeah, they do retreat into their shells a bit, and you look at the profile of the defenders they've got. They've got a couple of players from Legia Warsaw, um, you know, that probably aren't top-level players, um, with the greatest of respect to the Polish league, of course. Um, yes, there is an element of caution there. I think they could have finished off Switzerland before before they allowed Shakiri to score that brilliant goal, but they invited Switzerland onto them. Um, I suppose the thing against Portugal is that both teams seem to like to play a little bit on the counter. So I do fear a stalemate. Uh, even with Cristiano Ronaldo's um, return to form in the final group game, we were talking earlier on, he's, he's Instagrammed a photo of himself showing off his not inconsiderable leg muscles in an apparent attempt to intimidate Poland in advance of this game. John, do you reckon, um, do you reckon he has, they have what it takes to stop him? I'd be certainly fearful. I mean, the thing is with Ronaldo, um, which is actually Ronaldo as a player, now that he's 31, pushing on a little bit, is that he plays in fits and starts. He drifts away from the game. He doesn't actually play a central role as Lewandowski does, taking the the pain up front. He comes from the left. Um, and yeah, as I said before, this is not a defence that I would suggest is of the very top level, though... They have actually only conceded just the one goal so far in the tournament. Um, but yeah, I think Ronaldo, Ronaldo in this tournament, it reminds me a little of, remember the 1990 World Cup where Maradona played with a Argentine team that were pretty rotten. And now that's probably a little bit of disservice to a team con- containing players like uh, Andre Gomez, Renato Sanchez, players like that. But I do think that... Um, it's a bit of an ugly brute of a team, and then it just waits for Ronaldo to sprinkle his magic on them. And we waited till 117 minutes against Croatia, didn't we? And uh, suddenly he appears, and they grab the goal through Charisma. And that's something that the Poles have got to fear. Um, Ronaldo, I think, might be a little bit fired by what's happened to Messi at the, at the weekend. Um, and, you know, I think he might fancy this one. Uh, certainly if he's showing off his leg muscles, it, it would seem that he does. John, it's taken Ken a couple of days to process England's embarrassment at the hands of Iceland. Uh, what are your? We haven't had a chance to talk to you about this. <laughs> what are your overriding emotions on it now? Well, I heard Ken's uproarious laughter, and <laughs> I have to say that um, I was when I saw that Iceland had equalised. I was walking along actually to go and watch it, as they didn't have it in my hotel, um, and. Uh, well, I found it deeply amusing myself. Um, you know, we're in the we're in the uh, the realms of history being repeated as farce, um, and this. <laughs> I do think we probably need to reconsider that this was the lowest point ever for England in uh, their entire history. Because actually, Iceland were not a bad team, and uh, you look at how they did in the qualifiers. I mean, they beat. Uh, the Dutch home and away uh, did very well in their groups, nearly qualified for the last World Cup, of course. This is not a team of uh, absolute nobodies. Um, but it was a, a hugely inept performance. Um, uh, Wayne Rooney is probably the, the man that I speak to you, you chaps about the most. Yeah. 
and uh, I would suggest that if he did was to do the decent thing, it would be to retire from international football because he is not a midfielder, and uh, I'm sure Jose Mourinho will have thoughts about that imminently. Um, and he was dreadful on the night. That's not to say that someone like Jack Wilshere was any better or any other England players were any better, but there comes a time in a player's career when it's time to walk away, caps record or not. Um, And in general, it's one of those things where it's not even that surprising that they lost that game because um, I read a lot of claptrap over the tournament, including people saying that England had played excellently throughout the tournament and not just not had the breaks with scoring. Well, I'm afraid I didn't see that. I didn't see that. It, it, the first half against Russia was held up against, as, as some sort of paragon of virtue of how, how good England could have been in this tournament. But that actually removes the fact that Russia were probably the worst team in the entire tournament. To draw with them is actually a pretty disgraceful result. Um, yeah, actually, I'm I'm, already, I'm I'm switched actually, haven't I, from laughing about it to getting angry. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just one of those things. I, I, I you know, it, you watch that sort of aghast. Um, players like Deli Ali, players like especially Harry Kane, um, have a level of sympathy for them because they just weren't able to replicate the players that they have been for Tottenham last season. Yeah, an, and that's an interesting, awful. sorry to cut across you, John, but that's an interesting way of phrasing it because a lot of the analysis of the last couple of days is Alan Shearer led it in Match of the Day and lots of people have said that the Premier League is overhyped, it's not as good as it thinks it is. And, you know, we all know that. A lot of people outside England would say that anyway, but, uh, you know, he says the players aren't, they're just not as good as, as we think they are. But Deli Ali's a player who's exploded onto the scene in in, in a, I, w- I would imagine it, this is hypothetical, but Deli Ali could go to a, a Bayern Munich or something like that and probably be quite good. You know, uh, Harry Kane is another player who's proven over a couple of seasons now that he can score goals against really top defenders. So I don't know if it's just it, it, it can be as simple as the players just aren't good enough. They're just it, the fact seems to be they're just not good enough at major tournaments. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's easy for Alan Shearer to say players aren't good enough because he's Alan Shearer, um, and. And that's not to say I don't uh, I don't respect Alan Shearer's views on football because I think as, as the years have gone by he's done a lot more analysis he's worked harder at what he's what he's saying and and I think that there's some sense in what he says but yeah I've got to agree on particularly Harry Kane I mean Harry Kane has been to my mind the best striker in English football for the last two seasons now that's up against some pretty decent competition he's a player who. Uh, has played as sort of, as essentially as a almost like an, a, a, a a playmaker and also a, a lead striker um, and yeah it just didn't work for him um, I think there's certainly an amount of fatigue that's got to be taken into account you've also got the fact that um, I don't think Roy Hodgson had a a clue how he was going to set up that team from match to match. Throwing Rooney into the first game as a central midfielder when he'd never played him there before was was crazy stuff. And also, I mean, there's stuff that's that's coming out now that's dripping out through the English media, stuff that I've heard myself, is that the players themselves were bored in uh, Chantilly. It wasn't enough for them. At that point, we have to question the esprit de corps to use a French phrase, obviously, because I'm in France. <laughs> uh, to, uh, amongst those players, I mean, you know, they're away for three or four weeks. Um, they're there to, to play for their country. Um, if I contrast it to, say, the Welsh team, Northern Irish team, especially the Irish team, obviously, um, 
where is the where is the pride um where is the where is the sense that okay you're sat maybe in a hotel room cooped up bored you can't maybe go out and socialize in the way you may wish where's the point of sacrifice at that point and i do think um and the way that i'm told that they behaved certainly with the media been for quite um evasive when asked questions which are perfectly innocent i mean there's that question where i think they were asked about a darts match and joe hart refused to answer a question about it <laughs> that i mean i mean you know that's that comes across as spoiled pampered um you know it it, it, it to me it, it sums up why england's are regarded as arrogant um you know the stories of you know helicopters flying above the shanty um hq as sort of protection you know, but maybe if they lived in the real world a little bit more, they might appreciate what they're there for. John Brune, brilliant as always. Enjoy the quarterfinals. Timbuktu. They're all pampered. We haven't got leaders. They're all just headphones. They don't communicate. You can't get anything out of them. That's why we're no good. They're all just headphones. They don't kick on the pitch. They don't communicate off the pitch. They're all pampered. Oh, we're getting ready for Russia. Good luck. And then after that, we'll be building a team for Timbuktu. Timbuktu. England reacted to that equaliser perfectly. Um, no panic, calm straight down, continue dominating the game, playing and staying in Iceland's hearts. It's been the perfect response. You'd think that no problem. England have after four minutes, and they still lost. The only thing that they have got is the big boy up front, Sigurdsson, who really, Sig Thorson. Oh, oh my word. Oh. Tell us, talk us through that, Steve. I think we know what's happened. Oh, just say, Sig Thorson. Or just one last game, Kent, to get a mention in of that's the not inconsiderable task facing Iceland against the host nation France I'm very much up for Iceland as I think everybody is uh, mm-hmm. especially after having a great chat with our Icelandic friend Anton Ingi Svein on the, the podcast earlier on in the week he was <laughs> he himself was physically bruised he said after the <laughs> after the goals against England he's not sure how, how that came about but uh, he spoke really well about this sort of strides made by Icelandic football and essentially just the shock he was feeling in supporting his country in the European Championships and beating England. So that certainly cemented, I think, the the status uh, amongst, uh, certainly for me anyway, of Iceland as the, the team everyone wants to go all the way here. But uh, I don't know what this in In the stadium in Lyon, the French fans were great. You know, they were really, really into it, really passionate, really patriotic and all that all that kind of thing. Do you get that sense in Paris, though? I mean, is, is, is there a momentum building around this tournament yet? Yeah, I think there, I think there will be. Um, I mean, the French fans. It was it was visually it was quite spectacular. I thought. I mean, they give out those little flags at every game. Everyone's sort of waving a tricolor. You see this big mass of fluttering tricolors, and sound great. I mean, it's not as though the French fans are are like the um, you know they they do they they are a little bit impatient. You know what I mean? They they're the kind of supporters who spend a lot of time whistling 
um, whether it's the opposing team or if their own team is displeasing them, their own their own team. <laughs> they they do do that. But you know, you heard the kind of ear splitting roars for their goals against Ireland. You know, it really was uh, it really was something. You know, they they do like to see their their team. Uh, they do get behind their team certainly when they're winning. This is a difficult game though. Just be, they've got the same sort of problem England have. There's no real credit in in winning this game for France. It's kind of everyone. Ex- of course, you're going to beat Iceland. You know, it's the same expectation that England were under. So it becomes like the the downside risk is much bigger than the upside. You know, the upside is like par. You know, well done. You've you've got through. It's not even well done. It's like, of course, you've got through into the semi final as you as you should have. The downside is, my God, it's the biggest humiliation in the history of France, which is maybe unfair. You know, it's it's because of ice. It's because everybody. I was talking to a journalist here. Um, you know, one of the guys who had been covering Iceland, been writing stuff about them pre-tournament. You know, he 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 was saying, you know, he called up, he like called up someone in the government, and basically within a few minutes, he was talking to the prime minister. <laughs> it was like the prime, prime minister was trying to go out to him, and he was saying, you know, I I don't think there's any group of people currently in the world better informed about uh, Iceland uh, Icelandic demographics than football journalists covering the Euros. Like every, it's like 328,000 people or whatever, you know, so it's like down to the last thousand of people. Everyone knows these population statistics. And that's really what everyone, that's the, that's foremost in everyone's mind when they think of Iceland. It's like, this is a tiny country, um, slightly bigger than an average town in, you know, England. Um, clearly should lose all their games at this level. Clearly have to lose a, a team like France, lose to a team like France. But of course, Iceland are actually a bit better than that. You know what I mean? They're not just the 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 size of the country is is kind of an illusion. Like the team is actually good. You know, you've got some decent players in a superbly organized team, and also like a kind of a real sort of spiritual strength. You know, which can't be discounted either. Um, so the, so they're 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 bigger than they appear. Is what I'm saying. So it's, it's difficult. It's pressure for France. Obviously, they should win. The question is whether they can. Uh, they can execute it. Answer those questions very quickly. Predictions, Poland. We'll start with France, Iceland, I suppose. I'll go with France. France, yeah. Germany, Italy. France, Germany, uh, Wales, Poland, okay, Poland. And what's the other one again? Wales, Belgium Wales. on Saturday. Ah, go on, Wales. <laughs> Wales, a bit shock Belgium. All right, Ken, one, of, one of Wales or Poland to be in the Euro 2016 final. That'll delight everyone at UEFA. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Uh, thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 